Hey, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. For our first in-person but appropriately distanced conversation, since COVID hit, we were fortunate to sit with fellow Bostonian author, documentary filmmaker, and national arts reporter for The Washington Post, Jeff Edgers. We first came to know Jeff at a book signing of his recent book, Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. Since then, we kept seeing Jeff around town at David Byrne's amazing American Utopia show in Boston, in Quincy, the Quincy Jones documentary, and once when he tried to steal my original pressing of the Kinks Arthur or the Decline and Fall of the British Empire LP. Yeah, that last one was a joke, but he's a huge Kinks fan, and we are still hoping to catch his documentary about trying to reunite the Kinks called Do It Again. We sat in his backyard to talk current events, his continued hope for a Kinks reunion, and his crazy awesome collection of tape decks, record players, eight tracks, and his personal favorite, his Welltron 2001. So here is our conversation with Jeff Edgers, recorded in his backyard in Boston, Massachusetts. There's so much I wanted to talk to you about. And I mean, the first time I met you was when you did your your book signing at the Concord Bookstore. And that's when I did know. I, I think you introduced your wife then. Well, she moderated it. Oh, that's right. She moderated it. Yeah. yeah. And she's a professor at Northeastern, where yeah. I'm a student at. And then I kind of jumped out of the shadows at you when you came out of the men's room at the uh, David Byrne concert yeah that was a little disconcerting yeah i'm sorry was that a little scary I, was that I actually beard? filed a tort action I, that I night against you you know i only realized after the fact that i was probably a little bit too aggressive could you imagine if he had the beard <laughs> at that time yeah I no had... that would have been comforting <laughs> well like first Merlin of all olsen or something that um that show was <laughs> phenomenal i really enjoyed that show yeah i was doing a profile of him and then it got sidetracked i went to new york i saw the show twice i hung out with them went backstage Spent the day with him. But now it's on hold because his museum show, which I was really focused on, is now put off until 2021. Yeah. That show is an extraordinary show for so many reasons. But just the most basic reason is it's so rare you go to something and people are just that happy yeah. being there. Yeah. Well, you're right. And it was uh, it was tribal in the sense where there was uh, people that were reliving our generation and older probably that time of our lives with that music but in a new way with the way that David Byrne projected it it wasn't the same exact way that we heard it it was sort of an artistic version of what we remember it was so unique but I didn't even know I didn't know what to expect I didn't know what it was I didn't know it was just going to be all David Byrne talking head stuff I mean, I think people were aching to stand up and dance like it was a regular concert. And eventually people started doing that. Spike Lee did a film version of that. So I'm psyched to see what he did there. It'll actually be on HBO, I guess, later this year. But he... he filmed it. So, you know, I don't know what that... Oh, he filmed the Broadway. Yeah, yeah. The Broadway yeah. show. And yeah. he's going to put it out and... Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, HBO bought it. So that'll be cool. And, you know, the thing is, like, seeing someone like David Byrne, who is has always had a complicated relationship with his past, yeah. deal with it so, like, upfront. You know, when he does Burning Down the House, like, he could... Part of me at first was like, do you have to do that one because that's yeah. so crowd-pleasing? But then I was like, what's wrong with pure joy? Like, why do you have to be you know, playing only the obscure songs or yeah, like the right. insider songs or Izimba, you know, like... This is a legacy. I, I mean, I think it makes... He did it in a very tactful way. Right. Because he was artistic. But know? he also seemed very... Per- like, I, I saw him really for the first time as like a as a person, as like a human being up there. I don't know. He always just seemed a little... It almost seemed like a caricature. Now it's now 
when he was up there, it's like, oh, he's just a, he's just a, he's just a dude. Well, he never seemed like the kind of guy you'd want to approach. He seemed like a guy you'd be scared of. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I mean, yeah. he's got you know that whole Norman Bates look, and like he always was uncomfortable with people. Just the way he sang, the way he danced, the way he moved was mm. not welcoming. And this show is completely welcoming. Right. Exactly. Right. Hey, should we tell people if they hear a truck? Or trained that because there's this worldwide pandemic, we're recording this outside <laughs> in my backyard, separated by, I'd it's say, a, six and a half feet. I think this is a six foot perfect uh, triangle. We should just let people know if they hear a bird. Well, we do it at Woods Hill. We used to do it at Woods Hill a lot. Yeah. And so we'd hear the train going by or sirens. So yeah, but that was pre pandemic when we were talking about Triple E with the mosquitoes, remember? But that? they know That's we're true. not at Woods Hill because. That's true. They haven't reopened. Here comes the Here 417. Comes the- I just made that time yeah, up. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Incorrect, but I- that's the train. Love it. I take I- this every day before the train I love being um, so close to the train, but far enough from the train because I like hearing the train, like but I don't like it rattling. I wouldn't want it rattling my house. There's one that comes in like around midnight that has a big squeak in the yeah. in the in the brakes when it stops. Well, maybe- Maybe they should fix that one train. <laughs> fix that one train. So I'm sorry. That's okay. So the other thing is, I was just watching the Quincy Jones documentary that was done by his daughter, Rashida Jones. You know who Rashida Jones is? Yeah. The, uh, the actress? It's Quincy Jones' uh, daughter. daughter. Right. Very good. Yeah. You, so you do know who she is. Yep. That's good. And there you are. You're you're in the room talking to Quincy Jones. I'm like, hey, I'm talking to him next week. So. That seemed odd That's to me. Weird timing. The weirdest part about that to me, first of all, I don't really necessarily think I was very good in that situation, but beyond that, he was eating all this sorbet during that interview. <laughs> really? I don't know if you noticed that, but like he just was, he's super healthy now. He lost a lot of weight. He stopped drinking and he had this little, I see this sometimes with people who've gotten really healthy, they carry food with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he had like a little packet and he would open it up during the interview and take out this sorbet or like, you know, cucumbers or whatever. And during that exact moment, yeah. I believe he was eating, and they yeah. used that footage. It was just kind of odd to me. And also, I just really didn't, I mean, I would have tried to brush my hair or something. I didn't really know I was going to end up in, like, uh, a documentary. You looked very rock and roll. It's all good. You were trying to get more out of him about the uh, Museum of Af- African American History. I think. I think that's why I was talking to him, because he programmed about. this amazing concert right. that I was going to see. Yeah. And, uh it, I mean, that feels like a million years ago. It's four years ago now. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, I'm not, I wasn't very familiar with him, but it's, but it's very good. But speaking of documentaries, I'm a huge documentary fan. You and say, I, yeah, he, he's, he talks about documentaries in every episode. I do, because I'm yeah. always searching for new music documentaries specifically. Tried to find it where I can watch it, and I can't find where I can yeah, watch it. Yeah, you can't. Do it the, again, do right? Do it again. The Kinks yeah. quest to bring the Kinks back together. And I want to see it so badly, because I just, I, I've kind of run out of good music document. Music you should watch it tonight. Well, where where can I find it? Where is it? He probably has You'd one in the garage. You'd have to go into my, uh, my attic. I went to Canopy. I went to Netflix. So uh, here's the problem. It's very simple to explain. It's very simple. When I made that film, I made a film in a backwards way. I tried to make a film with my friend Rob that would uh, be as good as it could be. So I didn't deal with licensing or like permissions, but I also am very professional and do things by the book. So yeah. what happened is I made the film. I had like 14 Kink songs. I had like a police song. I had a lot of music in there, the jam. And then I went and got permissions for film festivals and I paid a boatload. Well, to me, it was a boatload of money yeah. because you don't make any money off festivals. So I paid processes. You get approval from the artist to at least license it and then you negotiate. Yeah. So I paid about $30,000, about 28 of it was to Ray Davies because he has most of those songs. Dave had a couple in there maybe, Strangers. 
and I paid, you know, like all the, like Sting was incredibly generous. He gave me mm. that licensing for like 200 bucks. Robin Hitchcock, I wow. think it was 200 bucks, but I paid for all that. I had met with Ray before the film was even underway because I wanted to make a conventional film about the Kings. My film is about my obsessive quest to reunite to the To bring Kings. it back together, right. Did but you I think make... that you would actually possibly do that? And why not? I mean, I just thought that would be a pretty cool way to end it. I don't know. But whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, did, <laughs> you know, not I to give it away. I think it's such but... a cool thing, that you, the concept in general. There's a, a group called the Cast Off Kinks, which yeah. is sort of not functional now because it's 10 years ago. But yeah. every year they play at a pub in England for a Kinks convention. Everything's spelled with a K, you know, Kinks convention. And um, every member in the group was in the Kinks. There are only two guys who aren't there. It's Ray and Dave. And every year, Ray shows up and sings a song. Yeah. It's like 250-person pub. So I I, right. I bought a ticket to that. I arranged to film it. But it's like all the, you know, like Jim Rodford, who played bass in The Zombies until he died. Mick Avery and Bob Henrit, both drummers. Mick Avery was the original drummer. Bob Henrit came in in 84. They both play. All the guys, okay? Keyboardists, whatever. So Ray shows up. So I figured, eh, maybe Dave would come by. Why not? And there'd be our reunion. What happened? So I'll just tell you why you can't watch that film. So when the film was made, <laughs> that film showed at all sorts of festivals. And um, we showed it in Boston at the Independent Film Festival of Boston. Yeah. You know, sold out the main hall there, Somerville Theater. And then when I started getting offers to put the film out, I went to back to Ray to you renegotiate. You know, here's how much... I'm being offered here. So the first step, which is get permission, he ex he pretended like I didn't exist. He wouldn't take my call. So so at that point, what I had to do was um, I knew that because of the Sam Cooke documentary that had been made and that Abco had tried to block, they had put it on PBS. So I did a little bit of research and realized there was this thing called compulsory licensing. So for nonprofits like PBS, you can show it and you don't have to pay anything, which uh, was not my desire. Yeah. I was not looking to get out of paying. I just wanted to show it. Right. So we made another cut. It was about an hour long. It took out profanity, took out like Clive Davis, I think. Mm. And we sold that to PBS stations across the country, played on about 25 of them. And that was when people got to see do it again. But not that long ago, maybe a year ago, I realized I had this entire film, which is beautifully, like it, whether you like the film or not, is professionally done, beautifully filmed, has yeah. great people in it. And um, it was in a, like 25 hard drives in my attic. And I just thought that was irresponsible. So I spent whatever it is, $600 for the expensive Vimeo account. And I uploaded the HD version to my Vimeo account where I have a link that is private. So after I mean, this interview, you see if you can give us a password? I could or? give you a password, but, you know, I could face a lot. You know, it's funny. Last year, Ray Day, they were putting out Arthur, reissuing Arthur. Huh. And I got a call from the record company. We'd like the post to have the only interview with Ray and Dave. I said, that's cool, but I also want to, uh, you know, I also want to talk to Mick. And they're like, no one's asked for that. But... I, so I got Ray on the phone, and he said, really early interview, he said, have we, have we met before? Didn't we meet in Boston? I said, yeah. Like, I mean, he knows. I'm sure he knows the whole deal. Yeah. But we just had a nice conversation uh -huh. about Arthur. But I get notes all the time. I get Facebook notes. Yeah. When can I, where can I see this movie? Because it um, got reviewed in Variety. It got yeah. reviewed in newspapers. It, it, yeah. it, was, it was good, you know? I'm well, proud now of it, it can go to a drive-in, actually. They're coming back. That's bring, true, right? You should get like some some dude to like open up with a few Kink songs, yeah, and then play the movie. Well, you you could do it. I you, don't think I. Do you play guitar? I do. I, I wouldn't do it though. You play guitar with Sting. I did it in the movie. He's played a banjo with Robin Hitchcock. He sang with with uh, uh, what's her name? That Zoe chord. Deschanel. Yeah, I did. Uh, and then Paul <laughs> Weller told me to fuck off. <laughs> really? Why does that surprise me? You know, the funny thing about that movie also is I actually um, I filmed Paul McCartney. 
Right. He's the most expensive one to do, I read. And he's not in there. He's not in there. Because what yeah. happened is I wrote a letter to Paul McCartney. It's know, his birthday just, today, by the way. I know that. He's 78. It's my dad's birthday, too. So I wrote a letter to Paul McCartney's office, and they said, Paul will do it. He's never really talked about the Kinks. I told him in the letter exactly what I was doing. I went to Las Vegas. I brought a whole crew. There was very specific descriptions of what I had to do. I had sure. to hire a makeup person. Did the interview with Paul. I asked him to play with me. It was funny because right before we did the interview, his guitar tech brought a guitar in. So I asked him to play with me. He said no. It was kind of fun and cutesy. Then I shared the uh, footage with them <laughs> because you, the contract I had required that. Yeah. And I was right about to go to a sales agent to sell the film. And that day I was in New York and I got an email from his manager and they said I couldn't use the footage. And it was really crushing. And I don't uh, know really what the reason is. They didn't tell you why. No, but my attitude was like, why didn't you just tell me this before we flew to Las Vegas with a crew and filmed this sucker? And for years, I actually believed I wasn't able to talk about that because I was so scarred by that note. Yeah. And then I realized, they can't tell me not to talk about it. And I looked no, at course. the note and it was just that I couldn't show the footage. Right. He seems like a really generous no, I'm guy. Glad I'm glad you're sure talking about it right now. Yeah, he's probably just he's probably managing I've talked to him like three or four times after that for other things. Never brought it up, but... He's been totally gracious yeah, and easy to deal with. Like Maybe guy. he needs to be talked to uh, in your new series where you call people up and you have a chat. I've tried on, that. That's a good new... idea. I would love to get Paul McCartney on that Instagram Live thing. The problem with that is I'm sure he doesn't press the buttons on his on his social media accounts. Right. And um, it's so been so funny doing that. I do this thing Tuesdays and Fridays, an hour-long yeah. or 50-minute chat on Instagram Live right. on the Washington Post website. Wait, is that the Stuck With Jeff thing? Or, it is, yeah. Oh, that is. Yeah. It's called Stuck With Jeff. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Now you're stuck with Chuck. It's, it's terrible. No, it's not. It's great. It's I think great it's pretty thing. good, actually. Thank you very much. It's probably better than Stuck With Jeff. <laughs> One of those people took me with Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue. It took me like eight full minutes of being live. Because you have to go live. Yeah, yeah. And three million people get notified. And then you dial up the person. And if they don't know how to do it exactly, you're just stuck there. Yeah. Marlo Thomas. Yeah, oh. right? Oh. So great. Free to be, baby. Did you talk about that? I did a little bit. Of yeah, course, I showed yeah. her a picture of um, Rosie Greer needle pointing. Because oh. I remember that it's all right to cry. That's right. It's yeah. all right to cry. I you look at that. that record now, it's like the people on that record, Alan Alda, yeah. Mill Brooks, it's amazing, I could right? just see and smell the sleeve of that record now. Yeah. Uh, that was like, we're all the same age. It was like, it just had that, you know, the boy and the girl talking to each other. Yeah. Plus, I had a crush on her. Even though Who, she Marla? Like a, yeah. Yeah. She that girl. She was cute. I don't know if I understood crushes when I had that record. Well, I didn't understand the crush either, but, I, you know, I was in the third, second grade or something. Yeah. I, I, I just remember, like, as you said, like, you can, like, an old record like that, you can almost feel the sleeve right yeah the yellowish quality to it yeah you can smell it you know it's yeah i don't know do you like vinyl chuck <laughs> i don't smell it as much as you i usually just listen to it you but. might have coronavirus this first thing to do is lose a sense of smell really but i want to talk about the book i mean it's not something that i kind of recognized as something that actually happened like i look back on that song and that these two things were the beginning of the growth of, of hip-hop and rap and was basically hip-hop in the world, I guess. But it's a very interesting time to kind of, kind of read that book. Also, you know, there's, there's been on the interwebs kind of like a viral clip from an MTV interview where David Bowie is talking with... Mark uh, Goodman. Mark Goodman, talking about why oh, yeah. don't you... Why doesn't MTV have more black artists on? And yeah, which I that. think is actually unfair... I'll just say I think it's unfair to Mark Goodman. It is, because he was on the spot, and I thought he handled himself But he also well, wasn't but, a programmer. Right, he was exactly. a VJ. 
Right. He had to kind of talk for the for the suits, right? And he had an awesome mullet. No, did he, he have a no, no he didn't he have a mullet. The, that was that the, Alan he Hunter. The, he had, he the, had like the, the fro. big I thought white he had man a, fro yeah. like the guy from Fame. I thought he had a dark curly massive mullet you can't no? have a curly mullet what kind of thing is that well, just, a, thing. a mullet by definition is cur- is is lower in the is longer in the Long back in the short back. in the front right yeah but no that's not him i don't, no, know. No, I don't a, think so man he had like rock and roll big fro hair you're either but i don't want to discriminate against you mullets, can't be both <laughs> i think yes. alan hunter is who you're thinking about it's yeah, definitely, yeah, hair, hunter, straight it's definitely not jj jackson who was so suave alan hunter was the blonde dude right who was the woman? Well, Martha Quinn was, Martha Quinn, was, yeah. was great. Nina? And then, there was um, a Nina, I think. Yeah. Nina Hayward. Nina Hayward, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I just thought it was such a great question. And, and he was very, he wasn't a, I mean, he kind of did this, well, thank you for being so honest about it. But he wasn't mean about it. The problem with it, though, I'll just say is there's a mythology around that that I think I explained better in the book, which is, there's this false story that's floated out for a million years that Michael Jackson's Beat It was sent over to MTV and they refused to play it because it was a black artist and that Walter Yetnikoff, the record executive, said, I'm pulling all my artists if you don't put that on. The problem with that is that that didn't happen. Beat It was played on MTV right away. There is a a, a real good question of race involving MTV, but it was... Mm. It's different than that, which is that there was a certain kind of black music MTV would play. I mean, I remember seeing Sexual Healing when I was a kid. Oh, I was yeah. like, whoa, what's going on there with that yeah. nurse? And I just was like 10 years old. I was like, well, this is odd. That was the and Lionel Richie mm-hmm. and Peebo Bryson. Yeah, I can picture that video now. They were on MTV all the time. The kind of uh, black music that was not on MTV was hip-hop and then something that was like super... Like I was saying, sexual healing, but sexual healing was subtle. Like Rick James, if you've ever seen his Super Freak video, yeah, of course. that that was not played on MTV because that was just like seen as not right for the genre. They'd play Jimi Hendrix because he was rock, but they wouldn't play like Houdini until you know until later. So that's what happened, and they were following radio, MTV right, right. when that flag came up, and that guy said what what it was. He said it was rock and roll. In 1986, when Walk This Way came out, the difference there is it's the first time a rap song was played on white radio, and because of that, all the other white radio programmers did it, and then MTV followed. So there's how it breaks, really. And the great well, thing is, is that the yeah. it broke on radio at BCN. Is that correct? BCN, yeah. which was the le- you know the leader in many ways of of programming, because they had Oedipus, who was seen as a revolutionary. They played it first because it had Aerosmith on it, the hometown boy, so it was palatable. And then when it was a hit, everybody just follows money. So that's how that happens, you know? So I, I want to step a little bit back to that because this is, this is kind of a pivotal, it's a current, you know, a relatively recent book, Work of Yours. It's great work. It's also so relevant to what's going on right now. I mean, I wanted to ask you, what drove you to write it? Well, the first thing is I did, it was coming up on the anniversary, and I was at the Washington Post, and I'm a little bit obsessive as a reporter, and I just decided to do a history of Walk This Way for the Post back in 2016. It's a five-chapter thing that I read. Yeah, Yeah. and it's pretty involved. I licensed the music for the record company so we could use it online. The one from Run DMC came out July 4th, 1986. I thought, 2016, that's the anniversary. I'll do that. So I interviewed... Everybody in Aerosmith, 
you know, Run and, and Daryl, Rick Rubin. I got everybody I could. I got a lot of people. But the thing about that story, though it was long, 5,000 words or something, it was really stuck in that moment. And I thought there was a much bigger story to tell. First of all, I thought there was an amazing story about Aerosmith that hadn't really been told right, mm. their history and how they got to that moment. And then I thought I could tell the whole story of Run DMC and hip hop to that moment and then just end it, like ended in 86. But um, I felt like everything like that could have been reported better. So I just started working on it and found that story. So that's really, that was the root of it, you know? It now, was just great fun for me. Sure, and when, when you found out that Run DMC was kind of on the way up and they were doing really well but then you realize that ironically Aerosmith this was kind of a rejuvenation for them was that kind of a pivotal moment well I remember look I was 14 years old when Aerosmith came up with Done With Mirrors which I loved and um, I would go to their concerts but they were also were not hip and they were not popular you know like I remember which record tapes I got from the Columbia Music Club and it was like <laughs> it wasn't rock in a hard place it was like Diary of a Madman, The Clash, Combat Rock, Black Flag 4. You know, those were the things. At that point, Aerosmith was seen as washed up. Yeah. And, I also, yeah. and, and one of the things I love to do as a reporter is I like to take, like you talked about the MTV thing, Chuck, I like to take something that's believed and just try to poke holes in it through truth and reporting. And I thought that the fact that Aerosmith was seen as the, you know, sort of rock heroes who lifted up Run DMC, <laughs> I thought that was bullshit because i knew run dmc had two records before that that did amazingly well i knew king of rock you know i knew Rockbox. i knew that they were superstars and they were young and they were on the way up right. and i knew that they are reverse. the ones who helped aerosmith yeah. get on the charts and then lead them to permanent vacation mm. aerosmith you know they were really done at that point i think that mashup that collaboration in and of itself was what drew drove aerosmith more to the next uh, chapter of fame or was it the fact that they got clean because of that or was that just a coincidence Both. Did it all sort of happen together or? all that's i mean first of all they had a huge hit aerosmith cleaned up steven tyler cleaned up yeah. because of walk this way because they were able to dupe him into going to an intervention by saying hey uh you got to come to the offices real early because this song's such a hit the bbc wants to interview you hmm. so he would get sucked into going before he scored that day and then they intervened cleaned up so the band that made Permanent Vacation is a cleaned up Aerosmith. The band that showed up for Walk This Way, I mean, there's a, there's a spin article that does it, but also I found this footage. You see that those guys are not clean. Yeah. I mean, they're just like running to the bathroom. They're insane looking. They look strung out. Yeah. The other thing they did, Walk This Way was the first time, Done With Mirrors, the record that came out in 85, they did not listen to their record company. They didn't listen to anyone. They just did their thing. Walk This Way, they were told to do that, and it was a huge success. So after that they listen to the record company so permanent vacation has co-writers it has a new producer it's them listening yep. and i actually don't like that record and i didn't like how aerosmith got very glossy i yeah. loved done with mirrors but huh. it was no question dude look like dude looks like a lady yeah ragdoll uh love in an elevator they listened and they made hits run dmc was really the ticket for Aerosmith's rejuvenation rather than the opposite. I mean, because I thought that as a kid. There are other examples of rappers, like Curtis Blow did a version of Taking Care of Business, but, um, and they obviously sampled stuff all the time, but there was no example. You know, Public Enemy and Anthrax came after that. Uh, you know, any kind of collaboration you think about, 
across genres was after that. Nobody thought of that before before they did. And the thing mm. is, like, neither of them seemed to want to do it. Well, they pretended at the time. All the reporting and all the writing and all the clips made it sound like they were buddies, but they actually didn't know anything. You know, I was talking to Dougie Fresh for the Instagram show the other day, and he was talking about Walk This Way, the beat. And, you know, it's true. Every hip-hop guy knew that beat, and he did the beat, Dougie Fresh, because he's the human beatbox. But <laughs> they all knew the beat, but they didn't know it was Aerosmith. They just knew it was number four on Toys in the Attic. That's right. Number four you know, attic, right? because most of the DJs scratched out this name because they didn't want other DJs to find out what it was, and they didn't care. You never got past the music. If you got to the lyrics, you were a terrible DJ. Huh. Remind me of who thought of the idea. Was it Rick Rubin? Or like who came up with the idea to bring those guys together? It's not exactly clear, I'd say that. So over the years, there are three people who are given credit. Rick Rubin, obviously. A guy named Tim Summer, who he actually discovered Hootie and the Blowfish a few years later and was at MTV in the, in the mid-80s. Mm -hmm. And then there's a woman named uh, Sue... Sue Cummings. Mm -hmm. She was in a, uh, like a managing editor of Spin. Sue Cummings actually has written a story on how she brought them all together, how she brought a tape to Aerosmith of Run DMC and, and engineered that. When I called all three of those people during the book, what became clear to me is that Rick Rubin was buddies with Tim Summer at NYU. Yeah. Sue Cummings and Tim Summer dated for a time, and they all knew each other, and they all were actually quite gracious about it. What I think happened is it was a conversation. Tim remembers saying to Rick, that. you know, Rick's, Rick liked Aerosmith. He loved that kind of meat-heady rock. And Tim remembers saying, oh, you should get Tyler and Perry. Probably said it, you know, and, and Sue, maybe she did bring a tape when she was interviewing Aerosmith for the story she wrote in Spin. So it's a I think it's a combination of, of everyone. <laughs> I thought it was nice, though, all those years later that they weren't fighting for credit. They were all like, well, actually, it could have been during this, you know. Right. Because it really doesn't matter, ultimately. When you approached the parties, do they agree with your assessment of the importance of that song? Did Rums DMC, did Rick, did Steve, did... Yeah, I think they do. I think they do. I think they all have different feelings about it. I mean, I think Aerosmith feels like that song gets too much credit, maybe sometimes, for their yeah. comeback. Yeah. I think Run DMC is like, hell, that isn't even the best song on, on Raising Hell. Yeah. And I think Rick Rubin recognizes why it worked and what it, what it did, you know, like... I don't think they harbor any ill will toward it. Yeah. I think that it's, you know, it's meant different things to different people. While we're on this topic, I mean, I can't help but think of where we are now, post-George Floyd. I don't mean to be too you know, naive about this, but, like, how, how does music help us with that conversation? With those difficult conversations of, of, of race, of... Uh, and, you know, I'm not just asking you this. I'm sort of... It's more of a rhetorical thing. That's I, I think that I, I can't help but think of these like two iconic genres that came together that were both from a white community and a black community and how that was a magical piece of work that changed the face of rock and roll, changed the face of hip-hop. What I'd say about that is the thing that's important about that is that until Walk This Way, hip-hop was generally like a small underground community that some people knew about but wasn't in the mainstream. And after Walk This Way, it became the mainstream. I mean, In Living Color, Arsenio Hall, you know, Yo! MTV Raps came after that. Then Public Enemy, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul. All this stuff comes out after that. And so today, when you look at, you know, Bob Dylan has a record coming out tomorrow. I'm very interested in that. But I wouldn't say that that's speaking to our society. I'd say that, you know, right now, hip-hop is the kind of, like, news report of the moment. 
and it has been for years. You know, Kendrick Lamar won the Pulitzer Prize for a reason. You know, Tribe Called Quest going on Saturday Night Live, you know, after the last election hit harder than if you had had, well, anyone, even like Neil Young, you know what I mean? So it changed things because it became the voice of, of, of all of our culture. And then there are like subtle ways it changes that I always see, like I just saw that Ava DuVernay, the film director, is launching this pretty amazing project where she's gonna actually fund arts projects that shine a light on police who've assaulted or killed people because mm. she feels like the George Floyd thing, one thing it taught her is it's so rare you see eight minutes and 46 seconds of someone staring in your camera and you remember the guy's name. Most of the time these guys, in general, slip away to another yeah. department or they retire or whatever. So And there's nothing on camera. But the thing that's interesting about that project is she's doing it, but also I wrote a story on it and I asked her who else is doing this with you. And she, uh, the producer, Ryan Murphy, who, you know, is a very powerful figure in, in Hollywood and white is one of her, you know, partners on this thing. Yeah. So I think just like that kind of collaborative, yeah. you know, process means something and people coming together in that way. But, you know, the reality is, let's remember, it's like Run DMC is a bunch of kids in a, in a studio eating cheeseburgers and Aerosmith's a bunch of strung out white guys just trying to get, you know, $8,000 to go to their next gig. <laughs> so I don't think they understood any of that no. thing. It's the product that created that. Right, it, it's not, yeah, it's not the... It the, wasn't premeditated. The intention was not what it eventually No, became. but exactly, but it was a conduit. It allowed, it probably was a trigger that allowed for more creativity that, that expanded beyond there. I don't know if it all began with that, but certainly that was part of it. Well, but all those things I reference, those cultural touch points. Right. I mean, if you go to Cornell University and look at the hip hop archives, there's a letter from David Letterman's music programmer from 1985 when Run DMC tried to get on there. And they had sold like a million records already. And it was this letter basically telling Run DMC that they couldn't get on there because they didn't fit the format. A couple of years after that, after Walk This Way, I'm watching Letterman and Paul Schaefer is introducing his new single when the radio's on i know you're a big fan of that song and uh the vocalists you know the people at the microphone include carol king dion and will smith it seems almost ridiculous to imagine hip-hop at a point where it was not allowed in the mainstream but before walk this way it just wasn't what do you think about with the, with the protests going on and a lot of musicians starting to uh i love that thing what is that thing called it's called the welltron 2000 <laughs> did you just make that up no, it's really what it's called. Actually, there's a T-shirt. And it still works. It. Yeah, it's one channel's broken. I'm going to fix it though. I love it. But you could put, you know, the radio works and the antennas. It reminds me of the 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 Bugs Bunny. Uh, who's the Martian? Oh yeah, Marvin the Marvin the Martian. Marvin, Marvin, Martian. Yeah, this, yeah, it's a, a good. Bit. It's a it's a quality quality musical tool. I I, love I that listen old to Spotify stuff. and stuff, but I you know no, I records the are the primary stuff. thing I use, and yeah. I have tapes and and eight tracks. The only thing. I have a Victrola. I have one of everything. Only thing I don't listen to. Oh, I have CDs. I just bought a CD player because yeah. I was like, I have thousands of CDs. And, Those are cool. I had to go out and know? buy. I bought all the. They're not bad. I bought all the players not that not I had bad. in high school. Yeah. The doubled tape deck. No CD reason player. not to have those. Are you a high speed dub? Uh, probably. I don't yeah. know. That was very exciting. I'm gonna copy your tape in ten minutes. That was so cool. <laughs> yeah. Right. You had a buddy that did it, and it was like well, less quality. Wanted make, he wanted to make a mixtape for. Uh, my wife for her birthday and he had like created the playlist on Spotify 
but um, I couldn't get another tape deck. So I actually was able to get a blank tape, put it into the box, and then use, it was a little cheat, but use the cord into the back and get that to work. It worked. It's great. Oh, the RCA jack? It. Yeah. yeah. Worked per- beautifully. All right, I'm sorry. We got That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of songs now that were written years ago by Public Enemy or Rage Against the Machine. There, a lot of those songs that were written about the same kind of stuff, I don't know if they're rediscovering. I'd be interested to see if people are, are rediscovering or discovering this for the first time. The Some of these songs that were written back in the 80s when rap was first beginning by NWA, by, by Public Enemy, that resonate so loudly today. But they didn't well, resonate look, the in the white is, community. Uh, first of all, those, so the problem back in the late 80s is that uh, stuff would come out and it would be profane or violent and people wouldn't really understand it. But like, yes. you know, Straight Outta Compton came out, that movie, and that right. was extremely instructive, I thought, and I wish I could show it to all kids, except that it does have, it's yeah, yeah. not really built for a 10-year-old, but right. when you watch like Daryl Gates's Battering Rams coming into a neighborhood, as you do in that film, yeah. and you watch people thrown on the ground and frisked, for no reason, which is what was the root of NWA, yeah. you go, ah, I get, I get it, it now, you know? Yeah. And then you can just like disconnect that from whatever, you know, the PMRC or whoever was putting labels on records, right. whoever was saying like, this is inappropriate, then you get it. White Lines, you know, I mean, all these songs, all these hip hop songs from like the early 80s even, it's like they all had a reason for being and they were all coming out of something you know, you had to see the video or like read the story to really understand it. But now it's obvious to people. I mean, it's not like, I mean, Public Enemy almost sounds tame when they're doing, you know, 911 is a joke. I mean, it just sounds almost like, like they're being polite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. You know, and the other thing is you get, you know, the shut up and dribble, right? You know, I don't want to hear politics in my music. I'm trying to escape this awfulness that, that surrounds us. And it's like, well, what do you think they were talking about when they were talking when they were singing "Killing in the Name of"? Right. Or, what is, happens is, is that people will get tripped up on on the profanity and not go past that barrier. There's so much depth behind it. It's like poetry, and so that's an issue because I think that not that, it, that they shouldn't have profanity in it, but I think that was a that was a stopgate right there. Right. Yeah. And and well, beyond that, I mean, there was actually a label that would go on it or. Most stores in Middle America yeah, Walmart wouldn't would stop put it, it out there unless right. you created the the clean version, as opposed to the, I remember the explicit version and the clean version. Huh. You mentioned Kendrick Lamar before. That was a game changer, obviously, because it was the highest respected Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, and the fact that there was a a, a stamp on something like that, I think, blew a lot of people's minds. I agree with you, and in a good and, way. You know, I mean, Grandmaster Kaz, who's one of my favorite underheralded rappers from the late 70s still around does like little jams on instagram he's the guy who hank stole his verses to get into um you know when they did rapper's delight but grandmaster kaz if you looked in his notebooks because i have a copy of a book he sold which is a replication of his notebook the way he wrote his rhymes and then the way he copied them over it's impeccable the writing is so beautiful and perfect because he cared deeply about every phrase and yeah. every everything that was being done it was nothing about it that was tossed off or like off the cuff you know so you're 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 still doing the podcast right i don't do i i don't do a regular podcast anymore i did like the last so one I, I think you did was actually with uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Is that the last one you did? I, I think I actually did like a R. Kelly one that was like a little bit 
of a departure, but it was part of that same series. It was very reported when we did a project on R. Kelly. Okay. But I did, you know, a season of this one called Edge of Fame yeah. with, that was a collaboration between WBUR and The Post. But now it's just hard to do multiple jobs. In December, I did a project on Altamont, you know, which was like the Rolling Stones yeah. disastrous Woodstock. And uh, we did a two-part podcast that was reported out and was very involved, which I love doing. Look, the thing is, I write, and that's really what I do primarily, but storytelling is really something, if you do well, you can try to do it in all different formats. I like video, I like audio, I like the written words. So if you do it real well, you have all piece, all the different pieces. I mean, Altamont was, we had three short films, we had two like 40-minute podcast episodes, and we had like a 5,000-word written story. I mean, that to me is like the ideal. I'm not a good enough writer. I'm not like Susan Orlean. Like, I can't just, like, write something amazing. I mean, she's a great reporter, too. I, if I don't do the reporting, then I'm yeah. going to fail in the end. And so I have to do it. If you had to pick one medium, documentary, writing, the newspaper, books, podcasting, what would you pick? Just on purely the thing, I'd probably do writing because I think I'm best at that. But all that other stuff, what I love about it is that uh, most of that other stuff involves working with other people. And writing a lot of times doesn't. I like the collaborative part of things. Yeah, it's, it's fun creative. working on a team. Like, never had more fun than when I was working on a TV show and I had like eight people around all the time. And we were always coming up with ideas. But I love writing. I mean, writing's how I got into stuff when I was a kid. And writing is the thing I probably do best. Well, I think you should do more documentaries. I'd, look, I'd like to make more documentaries. Just, it's really like that movie, The Kinks one, cost about 150 grand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. took, it sucked up my whole life. It involved like lots of fighting and like massaging of people and yeah. like it was it was hard. And you know, I'm an old man, and um, I have a good job. So it's like now what I do is I'll make like a podcast or like a mini documentary or I'll work with our video department mm, on yeah. something. Cheap and just, stuff. Easy, you know, easy. But I mean, would I love to make like the great Norm Macdonald documentary? Sure, that'd be awesome. But I've instead made like, you know, the seven minute video of Norm. What do you think has been surprising or uplifting or something um, special that maybe you never expected in your line of work? When you do a lot of things, what do you think has been this silver lining in this experience? Well, this is not a silver lining. It's actually a downer that I'm going to tell you. But yep. what I think is interesting to me is I don't go out to lots of parties and I don't go to rock clubs. And so, I mean, I do once in a while, but I, I go out sometimes. But I also really like being at home and I like hanging out with my family. But what I think I found interesting and communal about this is it's amazing how much we really do actually crave some kind of physical contact with other people mm -hmm. in a setting. And I found that when I'm calling famous people, like I called Ethan Hawke, mm. I was doing some story about a photo project that he was involved in. And it's like really interesting to me. Like I got him on the phone and I just asked how things are going. And everybody, when you say, how you doing? They're like, uh, well, yeah. you know, he said to me that he didn't realize how much he actually liked being around people. I yeah. found that with David Byrne, too. It's like, you know, he'll go out for bike rides with people, you know, with a mask on in New York City. He'll meet his band members. I don't think we realized how much we as humans needed to actually have some kind of connection and how much we're missing that and why you wake up some days and you feel like, boy, this is an awesome day. I've got the whole day ahead of me. I don't have to travel. And then other days you wake up and you just feel like there are rocks on your shoulders and you don't really know why. You know, and I, don't I think, think that's this what a, this is. Yeah, I don't think that, that, that that's a negative. I mean, I see what you mean, but there is such a, a human instinct that we all 
have been turned upside down. The fact is, is that you value it. I think what you're saying is that you value it more than you may have before. And I just don't think we thought about it. I'm, right. I'm sick of not shaking hands. Like, even the simple thing is shaking. Well, some guy, I was in Maine because we, we have a place there, and I was up there, and this guy came in. He was, like, showing, like, we were asking him to do a little work on the house, and he's like, I'm over this coronavirus. I was like, oh. oh. And then he, and then I went You're the other day up to him. Back. I went up to his house the other day to drop off, like, something for him to fix, and um, he came right up to me and stuck his hand out, and I knew it was, like, a big... I think he just maybe was doing it, but I also felt like it was like a like a test. Yeah, like, are yeah, you with yeah. me or are you not with me? Yeah, right. I mean, I just, you know, I, I actually probably won't shake anybody's hand ever again. I don't know. I mean, That's what I? Fauci said. I just don't know if I yeah. will. You know, it just feels funky to me right now. But I do hope that I can actually spend more time with people and go to dinner with them and, and hang out. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, thanks very much. Really appreciate oh. your time. It's been great to talk to you. you know, I'm so glad you guys did this. I really appreciate it. This is fun, right? We would like to thank Jeff for talking with us. You can purchase his book, Walk This Way, wherever fine books are sold, and you can read his latest at WashingtonPost.com. And as always, you can go to AboveTheBasement.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. From all of us at Above the Basement, thanks for listening. Tell your friends, wear a mask, and remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique.